You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Welcome to this week's episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement here on the America Out Loud Network. I am your host, Randy Sutton, 34-year police veteran, author of A Cop's Life and The Power of Legacy, and uh, the creator of The Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. On this show, we talk about all things law enforcement, but this is a special episode. And the reason this is a special episode, because I devoted most of the time to the guest that is in the interview room waiting for us right now. Uh, it is uh, it's a topic that is absolutely essential to be understood and to be exposed, and that is what is taking place across America with activist district attorneys basically creating their own laws and their own um, uh, interpretations of laws. Let's take a walk into the interview room where my guest is waiting, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this guest. I've got some exciting news if you are a coffee lover, and that is that Law Dog Coffee has been born. The Law Dog Coffee Company is a law enforcement friendly company that makes delicious, and I mean delicious, roasted coffee. Okay, here's the deal. Law Dog Coffee Company. It's lawdogcoffee.com. It is a subscription-based uh, company. So the, the coffee, which is phenomenal, is delivered directly to your door. You just, you just order how, how often you want it, and it gets delivered to you. Now, why am I so um, proud about this? Well, because this company came to me and said, Randy, we are a cause-oriented company, and we believe in helping our injured and disabled law enforcement officers. So for every sale, they will donate 15% of their revenue to the Wounded Blue. The Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. They are also a number one sponsor of the Wounded Blue. So, not only is the coffee phenomenal, I drink it all the time, but it is it is helping our law enforcement community. So, what could be better than that? Go to the website, lawdogcoffee.com. Oh, by the way, they got some of the baddest gear you can imagine. Great clothing line, all kinds of cool mugs and hats and, and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, so check it out, and 15% of all revenue goes to the Wounded Blue. You're going to love it, and this is, I made this up. I kind of like this. Law Dog Coffee. Tastes so good. Ought to be illegal. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. 
we know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. With me today in the interview room of Blue Labs Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, is Duffy Stone. Duffy Stone is the president of the National District Attorneys Association, and um, he is a career prosecutor. He began work in 1989 at South Carolina's Richland County Solicitor's Office in Columbia. In 2006, he was elected solicitor of the 14th Judicial Circuit Court in the South Carolina Low Country and has held that position continuously. Duffy is uh, only the second South Carolinian to be president of the National District Attorneys Association. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining me today, Duffy. Thanks for coming on. Well, Randy, thanks for having me. It's a privilege. We, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. I mean, as first of all, let's, let's um, talk about your organization, uh, the National District Attorneys Association. T- uh, tell a little bit about, about that organization, the history, and, what, and what, uh, uh, what it does. Well, it represents about 5,000 prosecutors, uh, uh, about half of which are elected throughout the, uh, throughout the country. It is, uh, for, for me, I have been on the board of directors of the National District Attorney Association for about seven, uh, maybe eight years now. And for me, it's been an opportunity to sit uh, in a room with uh, professional prosecutors from every jurisdiction throughout the, uh, for every state in the country and, and different jurisdictions uh, throughout those states uh, and, and sit down and talk about best practices, talk about the challenges that, that some of us are facing, uh, and have the opportunity to really not just network, but to learn from other district attorneys who have probably seen some of the challenges that, that I'm seeing or, or face challenges that I have yet to see and, and have come up with uh, workable um, professional solutions to those. So it's been, it, it's a great organization. Um, in that it encompasses uh, all professional prosecutors. We have, we have uh, of any political party, we have Republicans, Democrats, independents, and honestly, um, having been on that board for as long as I have and working closely with these people, I don't know that I could tell you uh, which political party every member uh, is uh, associated with. It's, it's, uh, it's that much of a professional prosecutors organization in which you know, political parties don't come up that much. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, for uh, for the the listeners here, there is there is a, I think some confusion about district attorneys and prosecutors. You know, they're 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 named differently. Um, prosecutors are uh, not always elected, and in many cases they're appointed. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, an elected district attorney or a prosecutor and and those who are appointed and how that process takes place. 
Well, in in uh, um, in the world of confusion, South Carolina does not help you with that. We are the uh, we are called solicitors, and that is uh, we are the only state that uses that term uh, for our elected district attorneys. Obviously, if you're from New York and New Jersey, we're district attorneys. If you're from Massachusetts uh, or Virginia, we're the Commonwealth's attorney. Um, we are the state's attorney. If you are uh, from Illinois or a fan of that really bad television show that uh, used to be on called The Good Wife. Um, but other than that, it's it, these positions, um, whether they're elected or appointed, uh, generally speaking, at least from, from the National District Attorney Association standpoint, uh, are those people that are the chief prosecuting uh, entity in their particular region. Uh, what, I've, what I've encountered through my work with the NDAA is there are some uh, district attorneys who represent one county. Uh, I represent five counties in the low country of South Carolina. So there are all types of different offices. Um, interestingly, the the probably the most common size of a district attorney's office throughout the country is about five prosecutors. Uh, but on our board, we have we have some offices that have as few as five prosecutors. We have some offices like Jackie Lacey's in, in Los Angeles or Mike Freeman's in Minneapolis uh, that have you know, hundreds of lawyers um, that prosecute. So we, we represent a wide variety of, of uh, different regions uh, and types of prosecutors offices, but all of them are pretty much centered on the same concept, which is being the chief prosecuting attorney uh, and in charge of um, really the prosecution end of, of criminals throughout the, throughout their region. Got it. Got it. Um, what would you say the, um, the numbers look like uh, elected versus um, I mean, ha are they appointed by a um, by a governor, how how does how do prosecutors or district attorneys get picked? Um, if if uh, you know how many are elected and how many are appointed, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how. I don't, I don't know the exact number. Uh, I wouldn't know the exact answer to that question. But overwhelmingly, the people that that I'm working with are all elected, and and so they are directly accountable to. Um, to the people and to those people that elect them, and, and I think uh, I think that's going to be the large portion of the case. I mean, I, I don't know how many um, are appointed, but it, I don't believe that's a very large number. Most of the people that I deal with on the uh, um, on the National District Attorney Association board are elected. Interesting. That is interesting. Um, so when when you when you're an elected official, um, you have to get voted in. That requires right. politicking. What are your thoughts right. about about how politics plays a role in the decision making of uh, of prosecutors? I mean, let's let's be you know let's be real here. We we know that uh, in this current climate, um, there's been there's been a tremendous amount of uh, political rhetoric that has been directed. Um, regarding uh regarding prosecutions how does how does that affect the the viability of uh, of the election process and and the, and the prosecutors themselves 
Uh, that is a great, that's a great question. And, I, and I'll tell you that part of what I have always appreciated about the National District Attorney Association, um, and in particular, that board of directors. And, and of course, I led with this when we, we initially started this conversation. But sitting around that table, the discussions that I have with, I am, I am a Republican from a very Republican state. Uh, one of my best friends and um, closest working allies uh, is Mike Freeman. Mike Freeman is um, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and his father was on John Kennedy's cabinet. So I, I, I can't stress to you enough that the political party and really partisan politics, and, and for that matter, even um, just generally politics, hardly ever comes into play when when we are meeting and we are discussing the, discussing the issues of the day. And I think that is a good indication of how these prosecutors run their day-to-day -day operation in their office. Um, I think that were you to go to any district attorney's office uh, that is a professional prosecutor and you sit down with them and you see what they are doing, I, I think each one of them, they will have a different approach clearly. Uh, they have different challenges. Uh, there are issues that some parts of this country are dealing with right now that other parts are not. Um, but at the same time, every one of those uh, prosecutors, uh, to be a professional prosecutor, you're going to have to make your decision based on, based on what you think is right, what you think is best for your community. And the, the politics of it, actually really should never have a role in it. And I, I know that sounds like I'm being idealistic about it, but that's not, um, to me, that's what I see when I work with these people at the National District Attorneys Association. It's what I see in dealing with uh, other solicitors in South Carolina. We will meet, we will talk about what we need to be working on uh, dealing with the opioid epidemic. Uh, we, will, we will talk about how we deal with the biggest crime issues that we may have in our particular regions. Um, but really discussing politics and the concept of any type of partisan uh, issues or um, or trying to take some kind of political stand just never comes up. I mean, it really never comes up. Well, I, I, and I imagine, quite frankly, I would imagine you probably saw the same thing. You've got 34 years of law enforcement experience, which means that you've spent a great deal of time with police officers, who some of which are Republicans, some were Democrats, and some were independents, and some were other kind of parties you'd never heard of before. And I doubt very seriously when you had a squad meeting, if that ever came up. You're, abs no, you're absolutely right. That, you're absolutely yeah. right. And I couldn't agree more that politics, politics should not play a role when you're talking about um, criminal prosecution. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of topics to discuss here. One of the the questions that I have, as as a uh, a, a national association, is there a code of ethics uh, for district attorneys? Absolutely, and and it, what's interesting is the uh, um, there's a model code of ethics nationally. There's a there's a code of ethics that that the National District Attorneys Association has actually published. Um, uh, documents on, uh, and then every state has a code of ethics. And what's interesting about that, when you look at a lawyer's code of ethics, um, there is not a section in those ethics uh, concerning um, really any other type of lawyer other than a prosecutor. 
uh, in South Carolina, it's Rule 3.8. I think that's the, uh, the model rule as well that talks about a prosecutor as a minister of justice and whose job it is is uh, to not only work for convictions, but also to work to ensure that defendants' rights are, are uh, taken care of. The bottom line is it all comes down to us seeking the truth and trying to do the right thing uh, in every case. And those code of ethics are, are things that we take very seriously at the National District Attorneys Association level, and, and every prosecutor I know takes those seriously. Uh, because that's really, that's why we are prosecutors. That's what we, that's what we went to law school. If, if many of them, like, like myself, I went to law school to be a prosecutor. And the, the idea that we had the goal of arriving at the truth, of doing the right thing, of making sure that uh, that everyone's rights were taken care of, victims as well as defendants. Uh, that is part of the appeal of being a prosecutor. And so we, we not only take them very seriously, we live it. And that's, that's I think, why you really don't see um, politics dominating in, in, in somebody that's actually a professional prosecutor. You're not going to see uh, politics dominating their decisions. Okay, so well, I, I'm not sure that I that I'm going to go along with you on that one, and the reason that I say hmm. that is because if you look at some of of um, the recent history, where um, there is there has been a ton of political donations placed into into electing prosecutors in a number of different large jurisdictions. Um, that have a political motivation, that, the, that the, the motivation seems to be of non-prosecution for a number of different crimes. And this is, I, I think that this, is, that this is part, I don't know that it's, you know, particularly a, a Democrat versus Republican issue, but certainly there, there are agendas at play here where a number of, of high-profile uh, prosecutors, district attorneys, have come out in support of basically um, interpreting the laws to mean that I'm just not going to prosecute for laws that I don't agree with. How does that how does that play when you're talking about about what the responsibilities are of a prosecutor? Well, surprisingly, Randy, you and I agree on this um, because when I was answering your previous question, I don't know if you recall that I prefaced everything about being a professional prosecutor. Uh, I don't believe professional prosecutors have agendas. I, I, I think the only agenda is making sure that you're doing the right thing. I think that you are seeing, um, in, in particular, and let's just be honest about it, you're seeing money being pumped in to uh, district attorneys races around the country by people like George Soros. Um, who, I'm glad you, know, you mentioned and, and, his name because I was just yeah, about to. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's it's the elephant in the room. Let's, you know, I, I think everybody knows what you're talking about. And here's the deal: George Soros has an agenda. Uh, he's not a political. He's not a professional prosecutor. I don't know. I think I also agree with you that I don't know that that's a Republican or Democratic agenda. I don't quite frankly understand what the agenda is because the the this activist prosecutor that uh, that George Soros is trying to create, uh, at least what he is saying on, on the front end is, we need more prosecutors who are willing to uh, try to reform the criminal justice system, try to make it better than it was. And my argument with that is, prosecutors have been doing that since the inception of the criminal justice system. 
every major improvement you've seen in the criminal justice system in the past 35 years, and I only limit it to that because I've been involved in it for about 30 some odd years, has been at the hands of a group of people led by a prosecutor. Uh, everything from uh, assistance for victims through family justice centers that was that was created out of the district attorney's office and city prosecutor's office in San Diego, to uh, drug courts, which were which came out of the Dade County prosecutor's office when Janet Reno was uh, was the district attorney there. Um, Child advocacy centers came out of a district attorney's office in Alabama. Uh, these these improvements on the criminal justice systems, I would consider to be reforms. I would consider those to be improvements. They have helped victims. They have helped defendants. Uh, and I think that they've made the criminal justice system better. So if if the goal here is to have prosecutors improve the criminal justice system, we've been doing that. So that's clearly not the agenda. What you brought up, though, I think is a really good point. You are seeing some people who have taken over their offices um, who have really not had an experience as a prosecutor. I, I don't believe they're professional prosecutors. Uh, I think they have inherited these offices through George Soros' money, and they come with an agenda, and the agenda usually starts with a laundry list of crimes that they're not going to prosecute. My message to them is run for your state general assembly. If you want to change the law, go change the law. Talk to talk to your senators and your house members and address it that way. As a prosecutor, your job is to come take the law as the as the general assembly has passed it, take the facts of the case, you compare those facts to the law and then do your job and prosecute the case if it's a case that um uh, that in which the evidence shows that it needs to be prosecuted. Coming forward with a laundry list of crimes that you will not prosecute, I, I quite frankly do not believe that that's being a professional prosecutor. I think that's carrying an agenda, and I think that's two entirely different things. I, 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 I am right in line with your thinking. But the question is, I mean, we have seen now a succession of, of um, district attorneys or prosecutors being elected on those platforms. I mean, and they're not even hiding the platforms. I mean, look at uh, right. look at San Francisco. They just elected uh, uh, Chesa Bowden, who is the the son of of two of two cop killers, uh, who's never prosecuted right. a case in his life, and he and he was elected on the platform of basically not prosecuting a, a, a litany of crimes. the The question I have is, how do how do you rein people like this in to do? what they're supposed to do, and that's protect the people that they were elected to serve. Yeah, and let me, let me not only, not only do I agree with you, let me add to that. You've got uh, that, that district attorney who left San Francisco is now running against Jackie Lacey in Los Angeles. Uh, and Jackie is a member of our board. I've known Jackie for a number of years, and she is absolutely a professional prosecutor. Uh, and I'm not sure that Gascon, the, the man who's left San Francisco to go to Los Angeles to run against her, uh, is not following exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and so there's, there, you're right, that is absolutely going on. Larry Krasner in Philadelphia was elected and, and basically said, I'm a public defender with power. Uh, yeah, that's, right. You know, I, he's not hiding it. You're right, absolutely right. But let's don't, let's don't take that, though, to the people's level and say that there is a upswell of, of people in the country that want that change. 
If you take millions of dollars and you pump it into a local district attorney's race, there's going to be an effect. Probably the better question you have is of all the money that George Soros has spent, why hasn't he won every one of those elections? And quite frankly, the answer is in, in those in those jurisdictions, uh, in many of those jurisdictions, and, and uh, an, another another professional prosecutor, Ray Murrow in uh, Fairfax, Fairfax County, Virginia, uh, lost election last time. And I've known Ray for a long time, and he is he too is a professional prosecutor. But if you put that type of money into a race to run against somebody, it's going to have an effect. Uh, I think that um, that. That, that's just going to be out there. But the answer is how, where's the, uh, where's the end game to this? How, do, how, does, uh, how does all of that change? And I think it changes a couple of ways. Right now, you have an attorney general who's speaking out against these people. Yes. Uh, and again, I, I want to be very clear about this. There are some prosecutors who are running as, in some way, reform prosecutors on using diversion programs and things like this. And that's not who I'm talking about. There are some, there are some good prosecutors who are career prosecutors who, like myself, enjoy making the criminal justice system better. Um, but if we're limiting it just to those people who are, are clearly pushing an agenda other than prosecution, um, and they want to be public defenders, and they want to change the law, and and, and do all that type of thing. Those are the people I'm talking to. So uh, number one, I think you've got an attorney general right now that's speaking out against these people and talking about how dangerous it is when you when you uh, say the things that are being said out of places like Philadelphia by their district attorney. Also, though, I think at the end of the day, um, the truth is eventually going to win out. And I think that the people that um, Maybe prior to this event, didn't know uh, what, who their district attorney was, or they voted, uh, you know, in a larger jurisdiction um, uh, just on appearances and, and didn't really know. I think eventually the people are going to figure this out because it, I don't believe that you can. You, you're going to have a dangerous situation when you have a, a prosecutor that stands up and says, "I'm not going to you know, do my job." Well, people are going to get hurt. And the community is not going to be a safe place to live anymore. And nobody is going to, I, I wouldn't think they're going to, in the long term, return these people to political office. But I think it's important that you do exactly, Randy, what you're doing, which is, you know, let's talk about it. Let's make sure everybody recognizes that there is an importance to having a professional prosecutor. It's important that you have somebody in there that is doing the job that the ethics require of them and that, uh, that really the job should require, uh, which is to make a decision based on the law as it exists and the facts and, and try to get to the truth. You know, uh, as, from a law enforcement perspective, uh, well, first of all, you know, this is not a discussion that you hear on the national stage. I mean, literally, right. um, you and I talking about this is the first time that, that I have heard any discussion about it from uh, from a, a a source such as yourself, who is in a position of power at, with the National Association uh, as a district attorney, you don't really hear this conversation, which I, which unfortunately I think is maybe some of the problem that there are low information voters out there that are being swayed by, um, you know, slick TV ads that are being bought uh, by George Soros money and and other organizations that are that are agenda driven. So the fact is that we rarely even hear this discussion. 
So um, the other, the, from, from a law enforcement perspective, we have heard the word accountability foisted right. on, on, on law enforcement. Police need to be held accountable. Everybody, the cops need to be accountable, accountable, accountable. Who holds district attorneys accountable? How, how does that work? Well, right. Um, first of all, by the way, what you just said about Soros and, and these slick television ads, you said that much better than I did. Uh, I, think you, I think your point is well taken. I think you're exactly right. Um, and, and let me add one other thing to that, if I could. Uh, when I told you that, in my, in my theory, the truth is eventually going to win out, some of the theories that they are pushing uh, simply don't make any sense, and, and they're not going. It's not going to work. Uh, the concept that, um, first of all, there's a lot of myths out there that, quite frankly, something else is not talked about very often. A lot of the underlying basis for this supposed need for reform is based on this theory of mass incarceration, that prisons throughout our country are packed with uh, people smoking marijuana cigarettes. Now. <laughs> for 34 years in, in, in law enforcement, uh, and I, we've heard that we've heard the discussion, so we know it's out there. In your 34 years uh, experience in law enforcement, I'm, I'm kind of curious on your take on this. But in my 30 years as a prosecutor, the only person I've ever seen go to prison for a for a marijuana cigarette is if they had a joint in their pocket when they shot somebody. Uh, I don't I don't see that. I haven't seen it, and quite frankly, I just don't think it's true. And I think at some point people are going to realize that that underlying issue is not true. And the concept that what we need to do is um, uh, take all of these low-level drug offenders and put them in diversion programs. I, I think diversion programs, your drug courts, your veterans courts, your mental health courts, I think those are good things. Um, I believe in them, and I think that most prosecutors that, that have been in this system for a long time do believe in those. But here's the idea. You get somebody into a drug court program because of the threat of prosecution. If you right. stand up and right. tell everyone, I'm not prosecuting anybody for a low-level drug offense, I promise you that there aren't any drug addicts knocking on my door asking to go into one of my programs. Uh, <laughs> you have Narcotics Anonymous out there. They can, they can make use of that. They're not. The only way they get into a drug court program is if they, they know that I am willing to prosecute them. So exactly. this, this overall concept of reform is, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, you know, we're just going to not prosecute any cases and we're going to put all these people in diversion programs. It's not going to be long before everyone figures out that's not happening. So I, I, I know that was not part of your recent question, but uh, that is something that I think is, is sort of an important point that at some point I think we will all start seeing. Um, who holds prosecutors accountable? In short, uh, the the ethics canons uh, give the courts a, a, a large amount of authority and the bar associations a large amount of authority over prosecutors. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I, I think the accountability, just like any executive branch uh, political official, is going to be the voters. And, um, you know, we spend a lot of time making sure that that our uh, that our voters know who we are uh, and know what we do. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, to, to me at least, the integrity of this office is the most important thing. And as long as I am uh, doing what I'm supposed to be doing, um, 
you know, I hope that the, the voters know what I do. Uh, I want them to know what I do. And um, as long as I'm being transparent and trying to do the best I can with, with, with the facts and the evidence and, and what I think is right, um, hopefully I'll continue to be uh, reelected. But the accountability is, is definitely coming from the people. And that's just and that's the same as any uh, any executive branch public official. Sure, sure. No, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. I, I just, you know, I, I get frustrated, um, as many in law enforcement do, watching the this debacle take place unfolding before our eyes, where basically you're, you're, as, a, as, a, as a cop, your job is to make arrests and enforce the laws. And you know, right. you strip away all the other, you know, all the other stuff that you know surrounds law enforcement. You know, the social aspects and social work that that comes with the job. You know, cops are protectors. Cops are are the enforcement arm of the government when it comes down to enforcing laws. So, when you take those tools away from the from the police, then you you really are are. Um, you're tearing away at the fabric of the criminal justice system as we know it. And so there's a huge amount of frustration within the law enforcement community in these areas where suddenly uh, they're being, they're basically being told you can arrest somebody if you want. Uh, I don't even suggest that you do that because we're not going to prosecute them anyway. Right. Well, I, I th and, and again, I just, uh, I can't tell you, how much I disagree with. I, you're absolutely correct. And, and again, I think that any, um, anybody that takes the position as a district attorney that is going to, you know, wholesale, uh, give a list of crimes they're not going to prosecute. I, I think the process is there, um, through the legislature. That, that's a legislative function. I don't believe that's an executive branch of government function. And, and I think most of the, uh, uh, most of the prosecutors that I work with, uh, agree with that. Um, I, I think you're correct. I think the other thing I've seen is the uh, you've seen a lot of the officer-involved shooting cases that have, quite frankly, caused a lot of, well, I mean, it's actually caused, uh, uh, you look at Ferguson, which is probably the first one that was, was um, uh, a national, a major national story uh, uh, during this recent during this recent time, right. uh, the district attorney there, um, Bob McCullough, is a professional prosecutor. He has been a prosecutor. Um, uh, he was a prosecutor for for most, if not all, of his career. Uh, his father was a police officer, and um, which which and caused some some consternation. That, right, well, it did. But but here's somebody who who could not have been more transparent about the evidence. He, he took it to the grand jury. He posted all of the evidence and let everyone take a look at it. The Justice Department, uh, in fact, he invited the Justice Department to come in. They also um, took a look at all the evidence and they didn't bring charges either. Uh, and yet that was, you know, that was certainly uh, uh, part of um, the angle that, uh, that got him unelected, if not the sole reason. And he made a professional decision. He looked at the facts. He looked at the law. There should not have been any charges uh, uh, against the police officer. And, you know, that was something that, that uh, cost him in the ballot box. But what I'm particularly proud about with, with Bob is if he had to do it all over again, I guarantee you he'd do it the same way, even knowing that he would end up losing his, uh, 
his office because of it. And and those are the type of people that that uh, you know I feel so privileged to work with on the on the board of directors of the National District Attorney Association because um, every one of them feel the same way. Uh, if if I lose my office because I make a decision based on the law and the facts, and I do what I think is right, and you know I get beat by by uh, somebody who's not a necessarily a career prosecutor, but is somebody that's coming in with an agenda. Well, uh, you know that's a that's just unfortunate, but I'm still going to have to you know that I have to live with myself, and I know looking back on it. Um, you know, Bob was a professional prosecutor, and uh, I, I'm sure he misses his position, but he did what he thought was right. I think it was the right decision for, for what the, the facts that I know about, and um, that wasn't him standing up for law enforcement or not standing up for law enforcement. It was making it, it was him making a professional prosecution decision. And I, I think that you're, you're you know, absolutely I think right. your listeners as... You know, I think your listeners as police officers recognize that, and I think they also they also know that that they're in that same position. They're going to have to make decisions that 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 uh, they know are not going to be popular as well, and that just sort of comes with the territory. Um, you know, I I know that I I booked your time for just thirty minutes, and and we're going a little bit over, but I think this this discussion is so important. I'd like to just to if I could get a little more time with you. Uh, I would appreciate sure. it. Okay, great. Well, I want to I want to get your take on on this incredible uh, debacle taking place in in uh, the state of New York. Um, the right. the, the quote justice reforms unquote of uh, of Governor Andrew Cuomo and and uh, uh, the mayor over there De Blasio uh, all in the name of social justice quote unquote. I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase that. Um, it has, it has, as far as, it's not just bail reform, as we know that it, it's basically given carte blanche to criminals. I mean, we're only seven days into the new year, and we're seeing, we're seeing the system collapse from the, um, you know, the, the wholesale release of just about everybody, including people who killed other people. But the, the right. other, the other part of this quote reform unquote is, is this uh, placing a burden on prosecutors to give to give contact information, phone numbers of victims yep. to the criminals themselves, and allowing them to actually visit the scene of their crime? How is this? How did this happen? Uh, all right. How it happened, I don't know because I'll be honest with you. I don't have the. Uh, I don't have a. Uh, a front row seat on New York politics. Um, I have, however, talked, I've spoken to uh, some of my prosecutor friends in New York about this. Um, and first of all, let me, let me just say, I absolutely agree with everything you said about this. And let's, let's start with a concept that is the underlying problem that I, that I assume that you and most of your listeners would probably agree with me and feel free to tell me if you don't, but the, the frustrating part of the criminal justice system and what has always frustrated any police officer I've known that, that has any experience, uh, it's, it's frustrated prosecutors, is seeing the same people over and over, the repeat offenders, the career criminals or what I call them. But these are the people that get arrested, get out on bond, commit another crime, get arrested, get out on bond, commit another crime. Sometimes they go to prison. When they get out of prison, they commit another crime. It's that concept 
uh, it really is is basically the parent, the the Pareto principle, uh, which is the eighty twenty rule. That twenty percent of your actors are causing eighty percent of your action, and and I think that's alive and well in the criminal justice system. You have a few offenders who commit the majority of the crime, and these are repeat offenders. But what's particularly relevant about this is they don't specialize in any one type of crime. I don't, I don't know a single repeat offender who only commits one certain amount. You know, it's like, I, I've got to break into cars, but I'm not going to break into houses. I, I don't think so. They don't, they don't respect the law. They're not going to respect any of the laws, and they're going to continuously violate different types of those laws. The New York bond or bail system, uh, as it's been passed in this reform package, does not recognize that. Because what that bail package says is that if you are arrested for uh, basically a nonviolent offense, or what the what their laws consider a nonviolent offense, then which is a whole which is a whole you, you get out. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, manslaughter in the second degree in New York, the reckless killing of another is a is not a violent felony. And therefore, the, the accused has got to be released. Robbery. Uh, if you don't have a gun on you, uh, you know, beating somebody up and robbing them is not considered a violent felony. Uh, breaking into somebody's house. Uh, these type of things are you know they're automatic or uh, you know they're, they're the bail reform law now in new york says these people get out of jail well it, it's not going to be very long before they go back and break into someone else's home or rob somebody else or kill somebody else um and that's because these laws do not recognize what most experienced police officers know what most experienced prosecutors know which is uh these repeat offenders are not going to specialize in, in any type of violent or nonviolent crime and, and even if they are you can't put that stuff on a list that needs to be are, are they committing a crime well <laughs> then you know there's that um so yeah i totally agree with you and i think that's why i think that's why these type of laws are particularly dangerous uh this is it may be a social reform movement i, I don't know what caused it but uh, i think it's particularly dangerous when you don't take into account that the people who are committing the crimes that you're going to automatically let them out in a bond should be made on the decision based on two components number one is is that person a, a danger to the community and number two are they a flight risk and if they if they are in either one of those scenarios they shouldn't they should be denied bail uh if they're not then they should get bail but you shouldn't make that decision on what particular crime uh, because it's not about the, the crime in that context as much as it's about the criminal. Uh, who, who are these people you're putting back out on the street? You know, just in the, in the days since, since this, uh, you know, since the first of the year when these laws came into effect, um, we've seen one of the uh, uh, offenders in, this, in the anti-Semitic attacks arrested three times, one right after right. another, I mean, basically getting a ticket for the offense, attacking another person, getting arrested, getting it over and over again. And I mean, I personally, um, I, I've, I've read some of the uh, comments by district attorneys in that area who, who are, they're so incredibly frustrated, but they're, right. they, are, they are now powerless. Which has got yes. to, which has got to make your organization. Um, you know, is there anything that that an organization, you know, 
that you're that you're the president of, do you have any input into this at all? Well, we have. Uh, I, I, do I have any input, or, or do, does the, the National District Attorney Association have any uh, input into the politics in New York? Probably not, but your listeners do. And and I think that's why this conversation is so important that that, that the population needs to know what's going on. And when somebody, uh, you know, what I see not only in New York, but what I see in in other states as well, and I've seen it even in South Carolina, um, that the concept of reform usually means uh, when you hear sentence reform, what they usually mean is sentence reduction. Uh, right, and I think right, that exactly. people need people, you know, yeah, I mean, people need to be educated that. That, that you know these words have meaning and, and you need to listen very carefully to what it is that they're saying because true reform is going to be a balanced report approach you're going to have to if you want to keep the community safe certainly there are there are uses for diversion programs for people with uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder who have served our country or coming back and, and have gotten caught up in uh, drugs or alcohol or something like that and led them into the criminal justice system. These diversion programs are good. Uh, you need to expand on those services. You need to make sure that treatment and accountability are available to these people. But you also have to recognize, and, and a friend of mine, the district attorney in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Amy Weirich, uh, tells me that, uh, tells a story. Oh, she gets a, she got a letter from a prisoner uh, who you know, we all get letters from prisoners, but this one was, uh, this was, was uh, a little bit different because this prisoner said, you know, as a district attorney, what you need to understand, I've been in prison and I will tell you that some of the people I see struggle with antisocial behavior, but some of them embrace it and you really have to know the difference. And, and, and I think that's a lot of what we need to be doing in the criminal justice system is focusing on who are these people that are embracing this antisocial behavior and who, who, are, who, who struggle with it? So it is a very criminal-specific issue. And so when I see these reform measures that don't take any of that into consideration, that, that, that uh, totally ignores the idea that there are criminals out there who actually will commit crime the minute they get out of custody, whether that custody is jail whether that custody is the uh, backseat of a police car or whether that custody is prison. Um, there are a group, of, there's a group of people out there that uh, are career criminals and they're going to commit crime no matter, um, no matter what type of, it won't matter what type of crime they're going to commit it the minute they get out of custody. And when I see these reform measures that are aimed at supposed nonviolent offenders, you know, I want to scream, who are you talking about? I mean, who, yeah. who are these people? Because exactly. there aren't. I just don't believe that. I don't believe that exists. You know, as we as we wrap it up, I, I uh, one thing that um, I truly believe, and that is that when law enforcement um, works hand in hand with district attorneys and prosecutors, uh, that is the team that really makes a difference when it comes down to the the safety of the citizens. And so I, I applaud your your. Uh, your organization. Um, I'm really, uh, it, this is a really interesting conversation for me to have and actually bolstered my, um, if you will, gave me a, a, a little heartening that there are, uh, that there are individuals such as yourself that are, that are, that are believers in, um, in taking the, the job of protecting citizens seriously. 
and uh, and there's a there's a long fight ahead for law enforcement and also for for prosecutors. I'm afraid that uh, that there's going to be that this is, situation is going to get worse before it gets better. But I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Um, you know, uh, Duffy Stone uh, is is the president of the National District Attorneys Association, and um, and Duffy, I want to thank you so much for for your input and and uh, and sharing your time with me today. Well, Randy, thank you for having me on. It's been a privilege, uh, and uh, hope to hope to get an opportunity to talk to you again soon. And thank you for what you do, and uh, and and thank your listeners as well. This is this is an absolutely crucial time for us. Um, uh, for those of us who are in the uh, public safety profession, and and I really do appreciate you bringing these issues to light. There's something very important I want you to do for me. If you've been listening to the Voice of American Law Enforcement for any time, you know that we are very dedicated to the law enforcement community here. I would like you to go to a website. It's www.thewoundedblue.com. I want you to read about how we at this organization are aiding injured and disabled law enforcement officers. If you are a law enforcement officer and you have been injured or disabled and you feel forgotten and alone, this is why we exist. We have a fully trained peer support team, all made up of police officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up, and screwed up. They know what you're going through, and we exist. For you. You are the part of the Blue family and you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. Unfortunately, many police agencies and cities do not treat their officers with respect and dignity when they are injured either physically or emotionally. So go to thewoundedblue.org. If you are a citizen and you want to help, please check out how you can join the Wounded Blue. And if you're a police officer or have been, exist for you. So check out thewoundedblue.org. Now, I would also urge you to see our film. It is on Amazon, it is on iTunes, it's the Microsoft Store, it's pretty much every platform you can imagine. It's called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. You would be shocked at how the men and women of this, you know, the law enforcement community in this country, many are being treated with such disrespect. Many people, most people, even cops, believe that if you are severely injured in the line of duty, you're going to be taken care of financially and emotionally. In many cases, that is not true. Please watch the film and help the Wounded Blue. Spreading the outlaw truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. Each week on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, we pay our respects to the men and women of the profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. 
My first officer this week, unfortunately there are four, Investigator Ryan D. Fortini of the New York State Police. Investigator Ryan Fortini died as the result of cancer that he developed following his assignment to the search and recovery efforts at the World Trade Center site following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Investigator Fortini was a U.S. Army veteran, served with the New York State Police for 16 years. He is survived by his fiance, parents, brother, and sister. Investigator Ryan D. Fortini, New York State Police, end of watch, Wednesday, January 1st, 2020. The second is Detective Maureen O'Flaherty of the New York Police Department. Detective Maureen O'Flaherty died as the result of cancer that she developed following her assignment to the search and recovery efforts at the World Trade Center following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Detective O'Flaherty has served with the NYPD for 20 years. She is survived by her husband. Detective Maureen O'Flaherty, New York City Police Department. End of watch, Thursday, November 28, 2019. The next is Police Officer Jerry Clyde Singleton of the Fairfield Glade Police Department in Tennessee. Police Officer Jerry Singleton suffered a suspected pulmonary embolism as a result of an injury sustained on August 6, 2017 when he was struck by a hit-and-run driver during a traffic stop while serving with the Kingston Police Department. On December 31, 2019, he was found unresponsive inside of the police station shortly after starting his shift while working with the Fairfield Glade Police Department. On August 6, 2017, he had conducted a traffic stop of a suspected drunk driver on Highway 58 near the Southwest Point Golf Course. The driver initially stopped, but when Officer Singleton asked for his driver's license, the man put his vehicle into drive and sped away from the stop. A car carrier being pulled by the pickup truck struck Officer Singleton, fracturing one of his legs. He was able to return to duty six months later, but blood clots began to develop as a result of the injury. It is believed he suffered a fatal pulmonary embolism as a result of one of the blood clots. The driver who struck him was convicted of several charges. Ironically, the subject lost an appeal of the convictions on the day Officer Singleton passed away. Police Officer Jerry Clyde Singleton, Fairfield Glade Police Department, Tennessee. End of watch, Tuesday, December 31st, 2019. The fourth officer is public safety officer Jackson Ryan Winkler of the Florence Regional Airport Department of Public Safety in South Carolina. Public safety officer Jackson Winkler was shot and killed while conducting a traffic stop on Gilbert Avenue near the airport's terminal shortly before 6 a.m. The man opened fire on Officer Winkler during the stop. Officer 30 shots, over 30 shots were exchanged during the ensuing shootout. The man then stole Officer Winkler's service weapon and fled the scene. He was arrested a short time later by members of the Florence County Sheriff's Office. Officer Winkler had served as a volunteer firefighter with the Latta Fire Department. He has survived predeceased by one brother and is by his parents and sisters. Public Safety Officer Jackson Ryan Winkler, Florence Regional Airport Department of Public Safety, South Carolina. End of watch, Sunday, January 5th, 2020. May they rest in peace. Thanks so much for listening to this special edition of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement here on the America Out Loud Network. I hope you found this a particularly interesting show. Um, I think uh, this topic 
is vitally important to uh, to um, our listenership and especially to the people of New York. I would um, really ask for that you find me on Facebook under the Voice of American Law Enforcement. Like it, follow it. If you have not seen my documentary film, The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed, I ask that you watch that on Amazon.com. It is a uh, startling film about how law enforcement officers are treated once they are injured and disabled in the line of duty. And finally, go to my website, thewoundedblue.org. Join this fantastic organization, whether you are a law enforcement officer, former law enforcement officer, or even just a citizen who supports the blue. There's a place for all of us. Unity is vitally important. And the mission of this organization is exceedingly important. So thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you next week here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement.